Let's see what the stew has for us today. Welcome to the Gnomecast, the Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew. So I guess we'd better be good. Thank you for joining me on this very special Gnomecast. Instead of Ange's steady hand today, it's all my fault. Welcome to the Gnomecast. Instead of your regular host, today you have me, Jared, the review gnome, and I've got an interview with you. If you would, kindly, uh, would my guests like to introduce themselves to the audience? Hi there, folks. Uh, I'm Cam Banks. I'm the creative director of the Cortex at Phantom Tabletop, and recently uh, lead designer or pretty much sole designer of the Cortex Prime Game Handbook. That is awesome. I'm very glad that you could be here with us today, Cam. Thank you for coming on the Gnomecast. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. (laughs) All right, so let's dive into some questions here. It's impossible not to notice how visually striking the Cortex Prime book is. Uh, It's not just the artwork, but also the uh, formatting and how the examples are laid out. Would you like to uh, talk about the philosophy behind the look of this book and maybe talk a little bit about who worked on the layout? Well, the work of layout and graphic design is entirely in the hands of our art director and graphic designer for Cortex, and her name is Tina Lam Collier. She's uh, astonishing. She came from a background working with corporate concept and packaging and so forth, where she had to do a lot of, you know, really good stuff of stuff that she wasn't necessarily all that hip to. Um, <laughs> so she was really keen to get onto this and, and uh, turn what I had made into something that was accessible to as many people as possible. So early on, we had discussed just how that was going to look, and a lot of it came down to. Can we make this as appealing as possible? Lots of icons, lots of, you know, use of white space, use of arts to make this book really pop and full color as much as we could do. And honestly, I mean, it's it's way exceeded my expectations for what it was going to look like. When I first started the Kickstarter, you know, several years ago, mm-hmm. my plan was a black and white six by nine book like most <laughs> indie stuff people are doing. Yeah. So, you know, anything stepped up from what I had originally planned was going to be good, but this is this is light years beyond my my original plan. Yeah, when I when I got the version of this that had all of that layout and everything put in it, like I am not kidding, my jaw dropped. It it was that amazing to me, and I I've seen a lot of books with a lot of different layout, but this just really struck me. Yeah, no, it, I mean I've been working in this kind of business for something like eighteen years, and I I just. I mean, I love all the work we get to see out of game companies now, and I felt like there's no reason not to rise to those challenges. You know, if you can see something that, that is super nice and, and uh, attractive on your gaming shelf, the, then if you can get it to that level, then why not try for it? Oh, yeah, definitely. So along with that formatting, I think it's probably a good place to discuss the fact that I've seen a lot of different approaches to how to introduce uh, rules elements, but Cortex Prime seems to kind of take a specific portion of the rules and then do a deep dive into that portion of the rules and then talk about all the different permutations of alternate rules you could use with that. Would you care to talk about how you arrived at that sort of presentation of the rules? Yeah, that I went back and forth a lot over the course of development. Now, remember that this was almost entirely done in a Word document for the longest time. <laughs> and even then, I had broken it out into chapters, then smashed it all back together again in several ways. There was a time when all the mods were in one place in the book, and all the rest of the book was just the, you know, quote, basic 
rules or the, the standard rules. And I quickly came to understand what I was doing was I was providing a kind of a toolkit buffet modular approach that makes this more of a game creation engine and less of a you know generic game rule set by itself. Mm-hmm. So in order to achieve that and to try and get as much backwards compatibility as I'd actually promised people with older Cortex games, I kind of had to put everything in there. And so in doing that, making it so that people could understand what Nertha was talking about, I had to you know arrange it in that sort of fashion where there's, okay, here's this kind of thing and here's all the mods that go with that and here's this thing and here's why you'd want to use it. And, you know, I mean, it's like a big, massive big box of Lego. <laughs> if that Lego also came with, you know, assist, you know, post-it notes stuck all over them and <laughs> maybe don't do this thing with this thing. And yeah, so, you know, I did not want to just give people a bucket. I wanted to give them a bucket with a, you know, instruction guide and maybe someone to sort of point to things and tell them that it might be a good idea to try something different with it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's very interesting to me because there are times with all the different rule books that I've read over the years, there are times when I get a little frustrated when a rule is referenced over and over and over again, and I have no context for what that rule actually does. And that's not the case here. It's like, here is the very basic resolution system. We're mentioning this rule. Here's a deep dive into that rule. And yeah. I'm not going to say that that's the only way to do it, but I really think that's an interesting way to present that. Yeah. And all credit also to Amanda Valentine, who has been a longtime collaborator with me and an editor on, on many, many books that I've worked on. She's able to turn my incoherent jambling mess into something <laughs> that has some structure. So, you know, and I've often said to in the past, if you like something I've written and think it reads well, then you can blame her. And if you don't like what I've written, then it's my fault. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, honestly, the only other game that I can think of that feels as much like a toolbox just reading the core rules would be Fate, as far as things that I have encountered. Yeah, and we actually come from a similar lineage, I guess I would say. Um, I've known uh, the folks at Evil Hat for a ridiculously long period of time. (laughs) You know, since the very early 90s when we were all together on online gaming and no one, none of us were known by anybody else except each other. And so this philosophy of design is something we, I've carried over from that, that period. Mm-hmm. I've said heavily informed by games of that era that were a little bit more different from D&D, Amber Dice's role-playing, Over the Edge, and, and Feng Shui, and so forth. And the thing that I get most, uh, when people compare this to Fate and to other games like it, I'm like, there's a reason why that is. I mean, we all kind of are trying to achieve the same sort of thing. You know, we're trying to solve a problem that we've seen with things in the way that makes sense to us. And if there's similarity, it's because of that. If there's differences, it's because we're different people. So <laughs> now, I mean, granted, this is a disclaimer. I usually love to tell people when I uh, I have my own personal biases and I absolutely loved Marvel Heroic. I ran it for a long time. One of the things that I used to love doing on my blog was writing milestones based on what comics I had read that week. Uh And thinking about that, I just wanted to um, ask you about the different ways for measuring character advancements. I know you mentioned milestones in here, but there's a few other instances of how to measure whether a character should grow or change. Would you like to talk about any of that? Yeah, these came from previous games, right? I mean, most of the systems that are in there for advancement uh, derive from 
older games that I had worked on with Cortex. So you mentioned Milestones. That's from Marvel Heroic. Mm -hmm. The growth rules, they're called growth because it's you know growing a character as opposed to leveling up. That's almost entirely from Smallville. There's a system of callbacks and you know session records and things where you write down what's happened every session, and that's kind of like how you get XP is by cashing in previous experiences in play into changes in your sheet, and that's from leverage and also mm -hmm. from life. So they, these are all methods that I, you know, thrown around for use in different license properties because they seem to fit well with those licenses, and it's my belief that. You know, combinations of those or derivations of those can be used in a lot of different genres and settings, depending on what you need to do. Now, milestones are—that's something I actually got from the Solar System, which was also Shadow of Yesterday, uh, Clinton um, Nixon's work. And you know, you can see them also in a way as keys in Lady Blackbird. So this kind mm -hmm. of idea of do a thing and check off a box to get XP. You know, hit these buttons to get these things. Combines, you know, sort of pushing your character towards a specific set of role playing goals while not making you do it. Yeah, and I really I like that a lot. I mean, also that you can hot swap your milestones between adventures in some ways too, so that if this story is going to be all about rescuing somebody, then the whole rescuing part of it can kind of be put into form of milestones that you can achieve and get XP for that. Mm hmm. I know one of the challenge I, I had when I was trying to write those for my blog, and by no means am I comparing my work to anyone's professional work, but uh, one of the challenges was you could usually come up with the 1 XP and the 3 XP from reading an issue. The yeah. 10 XP, you kind of had to guess what the resolution for the story arc was going to be in order to guess at what that should have been. <laughs> yes, and the, the idea with those 10 XP ones was always like, this is a momentous thing that's the, the you know, and you're going to close out the milestone once you've done with it. Mm -hmm. It's And it should always be things are going to change one way or another, right? The 3 XP one was supposed to be, this is something that kind of goes against or it's tricky or, or throws you into the deep end a little bit. And the 1 XP was just, you know, hit over and over again, get that. It's it's not hard to do. So yeah. it's, like you said, the 10 XP one did require a lot of us thinking, what do you think the actual outcome would have been in a what-if situation had they not done something? Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time it comes down to personal investment in for those characters, you know. In one storyline, if Hercules was going to have a last stand against the entire Masters of Evil, what he did in that one famous Avengers. Yeah. That, to me, is kind of a milestone 10 XP moment, you know, when you give everything to stop, you know, an army of villains when no one else is around to, to help? Or do you decide, I can't handle that and go off and try and find another way? You know, something like that, right? Um, mm -hmm. Clearly, Hercules is player and that's things, nope, no, screw it, I'm going to do this, I'm going to take them all on and get really, really beaten up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, I, I remember that arc. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, he was obviously motivated by Jarvis getting, you know, really badly hurt, but it was a good example of when you have a character like Hercules who is super great on a team because he's just a strong guy. He's, you know, he's kind of like the Thor or the um, the Hulk kind of character. But there was nobody else around, and the Masters of Evil at that point were innumerable. There were so many bad guys in that group. Yeah, and I mean, I don't want to, like, go off on too much of a tangent here, but what I loved about that arc, too, is that Hercules can very easily fall into the the comic relief 
and the stable guy. Like, you know, he's going to be able to do strong guy stuff. And mm-hmm. he's kind of a joke. And in that issue, it was like, no, this isn't a joke. He's willing to, you know, stand his ground and stand for something and potentially risk his life for this thing. Yeah. No, seriously, he he's supposed to be this um, the hero of all the epic feats back in the time of uh, you know, ancient Greece, right? So mm-hmm. I think at the time he was kind of feeling bad about he hadn't really been much of a hero and all that kind of nonsense. And this was his defining moment, you know, to be a true hero in the epic sense or to settle for this new life that he had been constantly going on a spiral downwards so milestones in that sense really do help that i think that they have to be kind of a collaborative work on the group you don't really necessarily make up your own milestones i don't think as a player mm-hmm. well i mean you can but i think it's really good when the gm has thrown some ideas out there and said here's some potential things that might be good and if you want to pursue these milestones here's what here's what they look like yeah, and I think that works. Um, it works really well when you have established characters, like when you're playing established Marvel characters, or when you know what the the theme of a story arc is going to be. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's true. I don't think you can really get away with it as much um, with an entirely all new original setting, and it's, you've had some time preparing and and doing the stuff beforehand to set that up. Oh yeah, and speaking of settings. You have three settings included in the Cortex Prime book. Do you have any plans to further support those settings or any further Cortex Prime products that are going to introduce settings in the same manner where they're kind of original, discrete settings like that? I can't really talk too much about what our plans might be for those. I know that I originally wanted to do full-fledged versions of them as books back when I was just a solo operation, just me and magic vacuum Mm -hmm. but there's also the option for people to create uh, their own stuff with the cortex creator studio that we're going to be rolling out uh, Mm -hmm. and in those cases building on those settings in the book is also possible i think for people to make their own third-party expansion so i'm not really going to say much about whether we're going to be doing more on that because i don't know that's it's not really the time to do that, um, but mm-hmm. there's more that we could tell about Hammerheads. There's much more we could tell about Eidolon Alpha and Trace. And so, yeah, I mean, the feature is not, it's not the end for those, I would say, in any sense. Oh, yeah, definitely. And the interesting thing about that to me is Hammerheads reminded me of something. And again, I hate to quit, you know, keep pulling this back to fate, but I can't think of a lot of role-playing games where it is as easy to engage the rules to do action that is not combat conflict mm-hmm. and that I really love that. Like when I was reading that setting going, this is something where you can use the same dice to express this conflict and doing something action oriented that isn't picking up a sword or a gun and, you know, directly opposing an enemy. Yeah. The, the goal for Hammerheads was from the very beginning, I want to do action adventure without violence or killing as you know, part of the expected goals and outcome. Mm-hmm. And it's clear it's directly inspired by my childhood love of Thunderbirds, <laughs> you know. But even now, I mean, movies that are disaster movies where you have heroic individuals like what was it, the San Andreas movie with Dwayne? Yeah, Rock. I just thought that was a great movie. Uh, it's <laughs> not the best movie, but I thought it was great because it was all about him trying to overcome natural disasters to get you know to free people and save folks. That's not a uh, me against the bad guys, pew 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 sort of thing. And yet there was full of lots of tension and action. So that was, yeah, the goal for Hammerheads was to try and create that kind of game. And I think I'm 
happy enough to, with how it's turned out to, to say that I've reached that goal here. Mm-hmm. So here's another question near and dear to my heart. Would you like to explain why the D12 is awesome and deserves more love in RPG rules? And also, what are your thoughts on using dice ratings to express game rules instead of derivative numbers? The D12 is such a, a red-headed stepchild of game dice. And as a red-headed stepchild myself, I think it's important <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to support more of them. No, I mean, it was my favorite die since I first started playing D&D. I've always liked it better than D20s, for example. Um, it's the Battle Axe die from 3rd edition, right? <laughs> Great Axe die, I mean. Yeah. And also this the die that barbarians get to have. It is funny because it seemed to be in there for no good reason early on, other than just to you know, be present for certain tables, random encounters and whatever. Uh -huh. of it. And when you do what we do with Cortex and then you rate dice, uh, rate traits according to dice values, the D20 kind of becomes an outlier. It's not really that useful. And so we throw that out there. It's not gone. It's not being used. So four, six, eight, ten, twelve is a good rung of levels, I guess, of, of, of trait numbers. And the reason that I like using dice for ratings is that it kind of gets away from the need to have dice be used for anything else. You've already got that kind of randomness implicit in the stuff you're putting together. So, you know, you're not rolling dice to get a target number that your, you know, stats and things have created. You're trying to yeah. use the stats themselves as the random element. So that there's a lot of freedom there to get that kind of swingy outcome, uh, which I really like. Mm -hmm. um, I get used the times of the, of using them and making, you know, it's like, well, you know, my best stat is a D12, but I can keep rolling ones and twos and threes. And I'm like, well, that's fine. You know, there are some games where you roll D20 all the time and that's the swingiest dice in the book. So, you know, I don't see that being terribly wrong. But the reason that the system in Cortex works the way it does is that you roll a bunch of dice and pick the two best ones or two of your favorite ones anyway. Mm -hmm. And that does skew the averages up a little, you know, so it, it kind of still works out. Oh, yeah. And honestly, I have myself in recent years started to really like games where it's harder to look at numbers and derive your percentage chance to do something like I would much rather someone be able to look at their character sheet and say, I should be good at this, mm -hmm. but not be able to say I have a 87.3% uh, chance of succeeding if I take this action, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, also, because you use it for opposition a lot in Cortex, it's not, it's still fair, right? I mean, it's not like, um, so in, in Savage Worlds, which is the other major game that uses these things, mm -hmm. that game's all about beating four, right? Four or higher, yeah. steps of four. It is a different philosophy, and there's a reason why they use them the way they do. They explode. You don't roll pulls of them. You just roll the one plus the wild dice half the time. So. That the goal there is try and beat four, and that's sort of why they condition it D four, six, eight, ten, twelve. That works for that because the, the the probability is always based on a fixed number. Yeah. When you're doing opposition stuff like Cortex does, that's not even remotely the same kind of system in that sense because either one of you could roll really low or really high, depending. But the cap on what you can roll is where the the better dice come into it. So it doesn't matter how often I roll my D sixes, I'm never going to get a seven on those on each die um, and so you have a better chance if you're rolling d8s d10s and d12s to get higher than that so that's where you're kind of judging it you know am i really good well I, I can get that high whereas my opposition can't get that high so that's where i have my advantage this is kind of getting a little bit more into 
specifics than I was planning on, but like that struck me when I was reading the rules for the hero dice and how that kind of breaks the upper cap and how yeah. that's kind of a dramatic thing when you can break that upper cap of saying, okay, we're just adding these, the two highest here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of why it's a, it's a mod. I mean, I don't think everyone should be using it in games where you don't want to have this wild, you know, excesses, then it's probably best not to use mechanics like that. But I always mm -hmm. loved it. Um, it was the big damn hero dice in Firefly. And it first appeared as the Flourish die in Dragon Brigade, which was a game that didn't really get its full publishing when we were working on it. Mm -hmm. The other uh, mechanic that does this in a way too is resources, which you roll them separately from the dice pool you've done for actions and so on. And you pick the best die in them and add it to your total. Mm -hmm. And you see that in Hammerheads, it's used as, as the resources on your Hammerhead vehicle. It's also. Yeah. We did that also for Smallville, and you see that in, uh, I think Trace has them. I was just also going to say, since we're mentioning Hero Dice and what we've seen about the future coming up, I watched the uh, Legends of Grayskull uh, actual play that you did for, the actual play that you did for PowerCon, and we got to see a little bit of a preview of the digital tools. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have an ETA on when we might get a better look at what those digital tools would look like? No, no, no ETA right now. Um, I <laughs> always hesitate to try and give dates for things where we've got our um, very brave and heroic <laughs> on these things. You know, you don't want to to sort of um, force them into that, that sort of expectation. Oh, yeah, that, that, is, that is totally actually, understandable. <laughs> well, yeah. Also, they know where I live, right? So that's <laughs> I, I'm safe in New Zealand for the shortest time, but but engineers know the Internet better than anyone else does. I have. <laughs> I have to say that that the set of tools that we had were just a mock-up put together by one of our engineering team leads, content team leads, and he is very good at throwing these things together and having them work for demos like this. And so if you think that was cool, then the actual the actual tools themselves are going to be even more robust. I am really looking forward to that. I There used to be a uh, plugin for Google Hangouts that managed all of the elements for Marvel Heroic really well. And it killed me when that didn't work with Hangouts anymore. Yeah, but I mean, that's the thing. We've always had to rely on third-party fan support in that sense mm -hmm. for games that weren't mainstream, right? So one of the things that I'm really happy about with fandom being the uh, owners now and, and providing the support and resources for Cortex, it's that we've got these people who can, can come together and work for you know, a combined goal of trying to get this, this sort of play support out there. You know, it's all official. It's all, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the actual game itself. And in that way, it's not just something that someone's had to work on over the weekend while they're doing their other job. It's, it's actually planned mm -hmm. and have this sort of thing to roll out. So less likely to be at the whims of someone's own personal time and more about getting this out there and having people have access to it. Oh, yeah. I've honestly... For a long time, I have thought that the future of being able to do online gaming for like tabletop role playing is less about a solution that can cover a wide range of games and more about having more tailored solutions that are easier access points for people to understand the game and the rules. Yeah, I guess it's in some way it's analogous to the graphic design and layout of books, you know, 
no one single layout is going to work for all kinds of RPGs or for board games or anything. The instructional side of it could be similar, but the idea of getting across information is something that should be tailored to the content. So in this case, the same thing. I mean, you don't really want to have a generic character sheet that works for every RPG that's out there because you're just going to miss a few things or won't work right. Yeah, and I think, I mean, this may be a me problem, but when I see a an online tabletop solution that has more bells and whistles than I want to use, there is always this thing in the back of my mind that's telling me that I am not using it right mm-hmm. if I'm not engaging those things. And I know that's not, you know, you can use however little you want to, but that's a me thing. It bothers me when I look at all of these other things and I'm thinking, I just want the tools that specifically speak to this game. Right. It, yeah, I, I feel bad. Some of the online virtual tabletop things that seem like they really do need you to have a lot more understanding of coding than, than the average person might have, or that just requires so much customization that in the end, you just, uh, I'll just use the basic level of it and talk my way through it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that's why people just defaulted to Google Hangouts, which is voice and maybe sharing stuff on Google Drawing or whatever, because there is no real ramp to learn that other than what you've already been doing. Right. Us with, with, with chat. We want something a little better for Cortex. We want to be able to offload a lot of that heartache um, onto um, our engineering team and have them create something great that you can use. But at the end of the day, even Cortex is going to require a little bit of customization. The tools are going to be something that you hopefully you can pick and choose the things you want to use in your game. And after you've made those choices, you won't have to make those choices again. Yeah. So when we were talking a little bit about the Legends of Grayskull, that brings another thing to mind. My personal opinion has always been that licensed properties with well-known IPs in the RPG space tend to use that license to sell things to people that are already in the RPG space. But mm-hmm. yet I feel like there's a lot of ability to take that existing license and sell RPGs to fans of the IP. And this it always seems to be like this fight between an outward facing awareness versus an inward facing awareness. And with the Dragon Prince and Legends of Grayskull games coming out, do you see this pattern changing? I don't know if it's going to change um, necessarily with each individual property. Obviously, we are trying to, I mean, fandom as a company is very much focused on trying to, you know, sort of support fandom uh, in geek places all the time. That's why mm-hmm. Wiki is and so on. The the game side of things, I really do think that we've got an opportunity to, I think everyone who is at least familiar with D&D or role-playing games in general, maybe casually, those are probably our market in one way or another. Mm-hmm. It's so much more in the mainstream now, so we can kind of understand or expect people have heard of it, even if they haven't played it. So a lot of people watch streaming videos now. Critical Role is a really, really good example. Right. Where they see all this funding had by people and you know, very attractive uh, celebrity folks, you know, playing games. And they kind of want to have that same feeling themselves, enjoying the storytelling aspect. But the idea of getting into D&D necessarily isn't what they want. They want something that's like a thing that they already are fans of. Mm-hmm. Whether it's like, in this case, He-Man and Master of the Universe and She-Ra or you know, new, new shows on Netflix that, that have drawn a huge following like Dragon Prince has. Partly, I guess, in, in sort of following along with shows like Avatar, The Last Airbender, and Legend of Korra. So mm-hmm. 
you know, I think that's that's kind of what we're trying to do is, you know, are you familiar with gaming? Do you want to get into gaming? Do you love these other IPs? In that case, this is kind of for you. But, you know, I would also say that if you're a gamer in general and you want to try something different that you think is interesting and you've maybe heard of those other properties too, then why not? You know, so we yeah. have, we do have kind of two audiences. There's the, 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 the gamers who are already been playing RPGs and have done for some time or even recently. And those who are interested in gaming, but are really fans of something else that we may have acquired as a license. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to me because obviously D&D happened in its own way. Like it, you know, it showed up, it ended up being like, you know, people may not remember this with the current surge. But like, I remember being in the 80s and seeing like basic sets sitting in, you know, Sears. Mm-hmm. And having the end cap at uh, Toys R Us that actually had all of the uh, actually the Dragonlance uh, modules on them. Yep. And I remember all of that. But the other thing that I remember, speaking of IPs and reaching out to people, is I went to Disney one year, and in the gift shop there was the Star Wars role playing game. And I don't see that kind of you know kind of I don't know reverse penetration happening. You know, it's it's very odd to me when I see some of these very big name IPs and they just seem so they seem almost more focused on the existing RPG market than the external market, especially in this time period with D&D exploding the way it has again. Yeah. What I'm seeing more, though, is people trying to take D&D, especially fifth edition. It's the one everyone's talking about mm-hmm. and putting their license onto that and just trying to sell it in a way that's 5e and. And we saw yeah. the same thing happen in third edition too, if you recall, back in the early oh, yeah. everything was an OGL book, um, all the D twenty versions of things. Mm-hmm. Which Star Wars too, like Stargate SG one and uh right. And in many cases the D twenty system or the of the five E rules weren't a three E in this case, but now five E. Uh they weren't really the best fit for the property, and that was kind of what I had so turning around my brain when I was working for Margaret Weiss Productions back in the day too, I just said, look, you know, we have to design the game for the property. We can't just drop it on top of an existing system and say, there we go. Oh yeah, definitely. I like, I, I love D and D fifth edition and I'll go out and say it is probably my favorite edition of the rules, but there are a lot of properties that I don't think fit that paradigm of how the rules operate very well. Right. I mean, we even had it when we announced Dragon Prince uh, for Tales of Zadia. There were someone says, why aren't you doing this with D&D? And we had to sort of like, okay, well, you know, there's many reasons. But one thing is, I don't think D&D is the same. The show doesn't really do it D&D-wise. I mean, it's not that kind of fantasy. The, mm-hmm. A lot of assumptions about D&D aren't present on Dragon Prince. And that's just how that is. I think we want to design a game that fits it better. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> this could be a whole other show, but D&D is kind of its own genre because it took so many different bits of so many different types of fantasy and put them in a blender. So, <laughs> well, and that's that's kind of why people can find a part of it and it use that as their as their um what do you call it an anchor maybe or your uh northern yeah. stuff. This is it's like I'm going to be doing this thing and I can tell that D&D is going to work for it because D&D has magic with spells and okay, cool. So does my favorite TV show you know, supernatural. So obviously, supernatural and D and D work. No, I don't. I don't really think that works out. <laughs> the only common thing between supernatural and D and D is how easy it is to bring people back from the dead. 
Yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. I'm sorry. Um, so speaking of established IPs, this is something that definitely came up in Marvel Heroic. Mm-hmm. But with uh, Legends of Grayskull and the Dragon Prince on the horizon, what about using the these rules to emulate existing characters versus creating your own characters? We really do want people to make their own characters with our games. That's that's pretty much the principle of, of character creation for Cortex Prime uh, is you should make your own characters, you should enjoy that, and bring to your character what you want and play who you want to play, right? That's mm-hmm. that, That's the number one. However, there's no reason why we should not allow uh, and make it easy for people to play characters that they're really, really fond of, that they've always wanted to play, and tell stories that are new. And, and you know, it's almost like fan fiction, right? So it's, it's the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to play Mechanic because he is just the greatest character in all of Master of the Universe, <laughs> uh, says maybe three people. And we want you to do the same thing. We want you to be able to play that or create your own uh, master of the universe in that same way. So that's the goal. Definitely make sure those characters are present in the, in the game, but don't let people feel as if the only way they can enjoy these games is by playing those characters. Right. We were kind of stuck with Marvel though. I mean, Marvel did not let us make new characters. So that's the, the trade-off, right? Um, oh yeah. <laughs> I, well, what's, what was really interesting with that though is, on one hand, I think there is a very compelling thing to want to play existing characters, especially in a superhero IP where it's not assumed that you could die in an adventure. But at the same time, there were people that got very hung up on, I don't know if I'm playing Spider-Man right. Well, you're playing this version of Spider-Man. This yeah. is the whatever, you know, Marvel 58713 version, not the Marvel 616 version. Do do what you want to do. <laughs> right. And, and I... And you know, much as I was uh, frustrated sometimes, people who wanted to make original characters, and I felt that I couldn't really give them all the options they wanted for those. I did also feel that with Marvel, a lot of the appeal is, is playing those characters in different ways. Yeah. It's the same thing when you're a new writer at Marvel or coming onto a book, and you're, or an artist for that matter, and your job is to reinterpret Spider Man for the hundredth time for a new story arc that's going to be mm-hmm. 12 issues or 26 or however long you want to do it. This is this is always going to be the case. You always come along with a character that isn't yours. You can create supplementary characters that are, are new. Brian Michael Bendis did this all the time. And then when he left mm-hmm. the comic, he would kill them all off. <laughs> <laughs> You're not playing it. You, you can't play with my toys. I made them. I'm leaving now. <laughs> Seriously, he did that so many times. <laughs> but, but the thing with, with Marvel is, and this is true for DC, uh, I think it's true for superhero comics in general, You, if you're not the person who created the character and you're, and you're coming on board, you're doing your own interpretation. You're using what came before as your guideline, but it is not the only way to do it. So that is also true of playing existing characters from properties. I think that's your, it's your version of that as a new writer or as a new artist to tell that story. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that's, I almost think having had the PDF for this, I almost think you had a better shot at kind of doing the, how would this new character deal with a situation with annihilation than with civil war Mm -hmm. because civil war was very much tied up into how is this existing character dealing with this changing environment? Whereas with the way annihilation was set up, it seemed like it would have been really easy to be like, okay, you're a Cree officer from, here or you're a shiar agent from here 
with you know all the building blocks that were in there and see how annihilation would have played out from their point of view yeah no we we that was the that was absolutely what was going on there right there were so many strange characters in annihilation in the comics that just came out of nowhere a lot of them were very obscure cosmic characters that no one had used in ages <laughs> and someone i mean th- this was most often seen in the spin-off or tie-in series mm-hmm. the two issue sort of thing about um i said golf was it the planet that glorian was trying to do yeah and on that world they had all these uh female characters from cosmic stuff they had just for no reason whatsoever just got together and decided to become you know a team to oppose him and some of them were like oh what where who is this person (laughs) oh you know like Maybe six years ago or sixty years ago, there was a mention of this person. They kind of was there for like two issues, and that was it. So you know, Gamora is is now very very famous. Everyone knows who she is because we got into the galaxy. But at the time, she was just that crazy assassin that uh, Thanos had used, who fell in love with Adam Warlock and was you know didn't wear a lot of clothes. And so yeah. that, that's the thing. You have a lot of characters like that who get brought out of nowhere for these sorts of stories because that's the setting that it is. And there's no reason why you couldn't do that with Annihilation, probably a lot more easily, as you say, than Civil War, where you kind of have to have the status quo shaking up. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I mean, just as a quick shout out here, I keep going off on these tangents, but this is great talking to you about these things. But we would not have had, I don't think, the sympathetic uh, Nebula portrayal that we had in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy if we didn't have nebula as she showed up in the annihilation books that's true that is true same with drax drax was a completely oh, yeah. character and that he's the one that you see in the movies now the one that kind of changed annihilation because before that he was that guy with the big purple cape and <laughs> oh completely different character so the, the same odd uh widow's peak uh cowl that vision has and mm-hmm. for no good reason <laughs> yep so speaking of both superheroes and ips you did some work on the uh, Sentinels comics RPG, which is also going to be on the horizon here soon. Yep. And I think it's fair to say that between games like that and even a lot of what Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast have been pushing towards with D&D lately, that game IPs have definitely become more of a uh, multimedia push. Um, hmm. Do you see anything like that happening with some of the things that you're working on here by multimedia do you mean having not just games but like you know comics and tv shows yeah like even like with sentinels you have you have video games you have you have uh miniatures games you have the card game and you're going to have the rpg so it's presenting itself on multiple fronts so Mm -hmm. if you're a fan of this property even if you don't engage with the rpg there's all these other things where someone might be talking about the world and you understand it I feel like with fandom, we are, our role is to be part of those initiatives that are being put forth by the license holders uh, on their own. I think that we, we bring to the table something that can go along with other things, other kinds of transmedia properties uh, in that same way. So, for example, Mattel, clearly with a lot of things in the, on the feature plan and planning for with TV shows and Netflix uh, series and things for Masters of the Universe, we're hoping to be a part of that you know new resurgence of uh, motu uh, mm-hmm. and very, very very grateful that we're a part of it the same thing with with dragon prince is that wonderstorm who are the creators of that show they've got tie-in novels they've got 
kind of kids, uh, well, you know, but I, they, they, books that go along with it from Scholastic, for example, like here's the mm-hmm. bell book and so on. That kind of cool stuff, which is the additional support for the show, we are also in the same vein of, you know, we're making the game of the show. And, you know, if they have a planned video game or something else coming out in the future, that's the same kind of thing. We're all part of this sort of new wave of, of multimedia products. So we are not ourselves, you know, during the multimedia spread, like, like uh, Greater Than Games has done with Central Comics. Right. Instead, we're kind of focusing on the RPG side of it and being, you know, doing as good a job as we can with that to make it go in line with the things that those license holders are doing. It does feel, and obviously, you know, Dragon Prince and Legends of Grayskull aren't out yet, but it, it does feel like you're more aware of the presence of the IP in other places than other IP RPGs that I've seen in the past where it's just sort of like, yeah, we're going to do this game. Oh, are you aware of this other thing happening? Uh, no. We just got the license. <laughs> it feels a lot more integrated to me, and I could be wrong, but that's just the feeling that I've been getting. Well, thanks. I, I uh, take that as a compliment. We do like to do our research, and we like to keep abreast of the things that are going on. This is also true of other RPGs as well. You know, I'm, I'm always keeping aware of my friends and colleagues and other companies and what they've been doing, and I'm very excited to back their stuff on Kickstarter or do pre-orders and things. I believe this larger community of gamers needs to have that kind of support and kind of a collegial atmosphere as opposed to being ruthless competitors. So yeah. the same thing applies. I mean, if if you like RPGs, then you may want to have tried this out. But also, have you seen the TV show? Obviously, you should watch that. You know, there's a cool encyclopedia coming out that's got all the stuff, you know, mm-hmm. this. And I want to be aware of all that stuff so that we can, you know, act as though we are part of that uh, holistic kind of environment for fans. Oh, definitely. I'm just excited because as we were talking about this and uh, different interpretations of characters and IP and things like that, I just realized that if I can convince someone else to run Legends of Grayskull for me, I could actually play Wrong Hordak, and I would be thrilled with that. <laughs> We've got this uh, neat opportunity to... It is it is a lot like fan fiction in a way, but you know our own um, Legends of Grayskull canon, so to speak, it's a multiverse, is the way Mattel looks at it. So the 1983 Funimation uh, TV show, a Filmation, I should say, not Funimation, mm-hmm. <laughs> the Filmation show, um, which everyone remembers from their childhood, if they're as old as I am, and you probably too. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but also 2003, the Mike Young ones, uh, there was um, a lot of stuff that's come out in the past, and DC Comics has had a whole run in the last few years too. So these are all different interpretations different universes within the same overarching canon right it's a little bit like what marvel's been doing with its multiple universes as well yeah so, yeah i mean in, in in your own universe you will have a character who is different from the one that you've seen maybe in a classics interpretation but even mattel does this and they're not shy about it they, they really do embrace that whole multiverse oh yeah and actually that's one of the things that i think uh gave me that feeling of being, you know, better having your finger on the pulse of this because that has been something they pushed a little bit more like in the DC comics with the the multiversal aspect of Masters of the Universe and these alternate presentations of the same story. Yeah, the recent Masters of the Multiverse um six issue thing, which I thought was hilarious because it also had like it had the old cartoon He Man and it had a little chibi He Man and it was weird <laughs> because I mean 
you know, going on an adventure of trying to stop, you know, various evil skeletal interpretations from doing what they do in the anti-He-Man, who was the main villain of that series. And you've got a little minifig kind of guy running around screaming at them. And <laughs> that's just so funny, right? Because they're just, they're completely wearing their heart in their sleeve. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's not even a wink. It's like a, yep, yep, we're doing this. This is how it's going to work. I also, I'm, I would be remiss in not pointing out that I, I loved the uh, Masters of the Universe and Thundercats crossover that DC did, mm-hmm. especially for watching Skeletor and Mumra interact with each other. <laughs> yes. They're giving each other a hard time about how they dealt with their specific nemesis, right? <laughs> it was great. Why do you let him do this? Well, why do you let him do this? Oh. <laughs> And oddly, like Skeletor came across as the slightly more pragmatic of the two. (laughs) Uh, Yes, but then again, if you if anyone who's watched him on shows before realizes he really is very pragmatic, and it's his (laughs) it's his henchmen and and stupid you know evil warriors and so forth that are just bumbling all the time. I feel badly for him sometimes. I do. I I think, you know, why does he have to have these idiots around him when He-Man has all his <laughs> smart, <laughs> educated folks? Well, I'll, I'll defend Evelyn, though. The, the only problem with Evelyn is that she could potentially do a better job than him. So, <laughs> Right. She's not really living up to her real potential. Absolutely not. <laughs> well, I really want to appreciate the time that you spent here. And I apologize for all the tangents I went off on. It's been so much fun talking to you. Do you have any future plans or information that you would like to share before we sign off? Uh, you know, just the stuff that we've been talking about. Definitely go to cortexrpg.com. We're sort of building this website that's going to be really, really awesome. Uh, right now, you can get you can try Hammerheads for free, even if you haven't been a backup to Kickstarter. The Cortex Prime Game Handbook, which we've been talking about with all its gorgeous artwork and layout, is coming from the printers now shipping out to our fulfillment partners atlas games up in minnesota and that's going to go into backers and then eventually to retailers and distributors worldwide so um yeah if you want to get in the cortex action just try and follow us on cortex rpg uh on twitter all the usual places on social media and i'll be there being uh my usual character crazy self <laughs> well again thank you so much for being on the show i'm definitely looking forward to seeing all of the Cortex material that's coming out in the future. I've been a fan in the past. I'm looking forward to being a fan going into the future. And again, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. You're the reason why we keep doing this stuff. This show is funded by the Gnomes 2 Patreon. You too can become a Patreon backer by following the Patreon link on the Gnomes 2 website to the Gnomes 2 Patreon. You can find all of us at gnomesdo.com, at Gnomes 2 on Twitter, and Gnomes 2 on Facebook. You can find me at whatdoiknowjr.com and at whatdoiknowjr on Twitter. Gnomecast is hosted by Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs.